The Startup Executive is a podcast designed to help you become a well-rounded startup executive. The best executives have a good understanding of all aspects of the business. Join us each week to learn from a new go-to-market leader on what is important in their department and what it takes to become an effective startup executive. Thanks for joining us. Today, we will be talking with Yarkin Sakucholo, founder and CEO of the event management software leader, Socio. He actually dropped out of Purdue University with his co-founders to pursue Socio full-time. And while he may not suggest taking that route, his giant leap landed he and his co-founders in an acquisition. In 2021, WebEx Events, formerly known as Cisco, acquired this Indiana-based Socio to drive toward a shared vision of transforming the event industry by creating the world's first completely end-to-end hybrid event and meeting technology suite. If that wasn't enough, Yarkin was named the Forbes 30 Under 30 Enterprise Technology List in 2016. In our conversation with Yarkin, we'll touch on finding co-founders, sketching out a framework for the business early on, and why failure in founding a startup is inevitable and encouraged. Enjoy the listen. Thanks for coming on, Yarkin. Thank you for having me. Very excited for today. Yeah, I'm excited as well. You and I definitely go back and I'm excited to dive into some of these these stories that I've heard a little bit about, dig a little deeper and share it with the rest of the world as well. I want to get started there just sharing with the rest of the world a little bit of background on yourself, just 45 seconds, a minute, tell people about kind of who you are and how you got to where you're at today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll do a quick, quick recap of my life. My name is Yarkin. I am originally from Turkey, so that's where the weird last name and the accent is from. <laughs> I came here to the United States. I basically left my family, my friends, basically my entire life when I was, I think I was 14 or 15. And I started going to high school here in the United States in Arizona. After a few years there, I moved to the Midwest and started going to Purdue to study computer science. That's where I met my co-founders these incredible guys. And we went ahead and dropped out of Purdue and started uh, this small company called Socio out of our, uh, it's a bit cliche, but out of our dorm room, basically. Later, we ran it for five, almost six years. And just two years ago, it's kind of crazy. It has already been two years. Time, Time flies by. Cisco Systems, a pioneer in communications and the internet, really, Uh, came in and acquired Socio, and we became a part of the WebEx family. And I now help lead the events business under the name WebEx Events now. So that's my quick story. And one of the things I love to hear about, like young founders specifically, like was Socio kind of your first intro into the business world? Or were you, you know, like trading cards on the street or like... Tell me about that. Was Socio the the first business or was there stuff that you worked on before that uh, that maybe was a lot less successful, but still, you know, crucial uh, in your development? Socio was definitely the first, really the big thing that I I did. It was really my first real experience, I would say, uh, with the business world or entrepreneurship. But I'm pretty lucky. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So I always grew up in the conversation, really. Always this deal making, talking business. It was kind of came a bit natural to me for that reason. So, given that's the case, I definitely was very entrepreneurial growing up as well, even even as a kid. 
uh, I got to pick one uh, to tell you. I guess my first one, first venture that I had, I guess, that made me money as a kid was back in the day. Uh, I don't know if you all remember this, but Blackberries were the thing. Like there was a Blackberry Messenger, you know, and Blackberry was, was the iPhone of my childhood, I guess. And very early on, I think I was in middle school, I saw in a TV show, I believe it was like maybe a Korean or Japanese, that they had Blackberries and they had these phone cases. You know, they would have these bunny ears, you know, glow in dark and all these crazy things. And we literally had none of that in Turkey. Literally, the only thing they were selling about phones were the phones themselves and not no, no ex, you know, accessories or anything, no add-ons or no customization. So I was like, wow, that, that will change the game for sure. So I started going. I also had one of my friends from school. We went ahead and looked at manufacturers who would manufacture things like this. And I remember begging my dad to let me put in his account number in, you know, his credit card in, so I can go ahead and order a sample of 500 of these and start selling them. And he, he did that for me, which is pr- pretty awesome uh, for him to trust a little kid with his credit card. He did that for me. I started buying samples. I originally thought we would sell them direct to consumer. But then that's where I met B2B2C, I guess. Uh, and I learned that I can go ahead and sell this to, you know, the small businesses, gas stations, pop-ups in malls, and then they can go ahead and sell it for me. Uh, that's what I started doing. And it, I got my computer from, I, get a, I bought a computer from the money that I made and all that stuff until they, I think these shops realized that they, this works. So they removed the middleman and they started buying it directly themselves. So that was the end of my venture, but it was, it was a lot of fun for sure. And maybe a valuable lesson there as well from a, an early age. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Make yourself irreplaceable, right? Uh, make it so that your business or your product cannot, cannot easily be ripped out of the, you know, wherever it's implemented, whether it's a process or it's a you know, fundamental product that runs your business. Uh, yes, definitely build sticky products and build sticky companies. Lesson learned at an early age. You're right, Grace. I love that you said make it something that they can't live without. And I, I know that you've talked about that being an essential part of, you know, finding that product market fit. So maybe if we just start talking about the actual event, the socio venture, uh, how yeah. did it go from you know, an idea, maybe you walk us through how you even thought about building this company, an idea to then actually ideating how to actually build it and execute. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, great question. One thing that I will probably repeat a few times throughout this uh, interview, throughout this conversation is going to be that ideas are overrated. Uh, and one thing you do realize as a yeah, as a first time entrepreneur, and I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs now because people, you know, uh, hit us up for questions, for advice, for funding. And one thing that I see very frequently when I talk to first time entrepreneurs is that they really value the idea. You know, they think that hey, if I have the right idea, it will make everything easier. And you know, to a certain degree, I don't think they're wrong. I think the good idea helps with everything, but. Uh, you quickly realize that it means nothing. Uh, it's really all about you know it, the, your ability to execute and not necessarily your ability to come up with great ideas. So my story is very similar to that initial idea that led to us you know dropping out and starting this company really has very very little to do with what we do today. 
we were students at Purdue, and I remember attending the student orientation program at the very, very beginning of college. So you get to meet, you know, make a few friends and understand how to navigate and survive the life on campus. Uh, that was one of my first ever events, you know, like events that I attended where there were, you know, t thousands, tens of thousands of people with the goal of learning something as well as networking and getting to know other people. So one thing that I realized there was everyone is eager to exchange contact information and stay in touch. And there is just a million different, you know, there's your Twitter where you share your ideas, Instagram where you, you know, or Snapchat where you take a quick snap and then you share that with your friends. There's your phone number, there's your LinkedIn, your email, you know, all this stuff. And you want to exchange contact information, yet there isn't an easy way to do that. So the initial idea we came up with was a consumer application right, uh, that helped people exchange contact information easily. You would, Grayson would have a profile, Crystal, you will have a profile, I'll have a profile. And when the three of us, you know, meet at, a, at an event or, you know, a sporting event at the college or a party, wh whatever it might be, right, we would simply put our phones next to each other, give them a quick shake, like a digital handshake, and then it will exchange contact information and connect all three of us in all of our networks. So that was the the brilliant idea that we were so impressed by and you know we thought well, we we're going to build a world leader in that and you know uh, looking back at it i can see why n nobody cared uh, you know i i I, <laughs> I don't think it's a bad idea it's just very difficult to execute something like this because you need everybody to have the application so it's useful so that was the first idea and definitely has very little to do with what we do today can we talk about that transition? You're talking about going direct to consumer. You're obviously yeah. not there now. It's not what got yeah. you to WebEx, right? So can you talk to us about that transition to B2B? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Ali, my co-founder and CTO, and Joe Watkins, the three of us, we met. I first met Ali. And then uh, through Ali's connections, uh, we met Joe, and we started building this application. You know, we had an iOS app, we had an Android app, then we launched it. And guess what happened? We learned a valuable lesson that, you know, <laughs> you can't just build a product and expect people to use it, right? You need a plan. And a lot of times distribution can be, you know, sometimes more important than the product itself because product without distributions means nothing. So we launched the product you know, we had some downloads, even the people that downloaded it didn't come back and use it. We had, you know, we had retention issues Then we launched again. So we literally tried this a few times, literally just running, sprinting into a wall, you know, falling down, getting up, sprinting one more time uh, until we realized that you can't just keep doing the same thing again and again and expect very different results. So that's when the pivot to events happened. Uh, the thing that we analyzed, Crystal, was if nobody has the application, there is no use to it. The moment more than half of the people in a room do have the application, the networking becomes very useful. So the question became, how can we get half of the people, maybe we can't get half of the people in the world to use the application, but how can we get half of the people in a room? you know, in a convention center to use it. So that's when the idea of going to events became a thing. And I, uh, I'll never forget this. I would wake up at like 6 a.m., 5 a.m. every morning, and we would literally drive to 
any event we can find, whether it's a chamber of commerce, a networking event, just to understand how this works. And the more we talk to event organizers, the more we realize that while networking and making networking efficient is an important priority for them, that's not the only problem they are facing. You know, event planning is difficult, it's complex, and that's when we realized, hey, we can use this existing technology we have, pivot it to B2B, and help event organizers use this technology to provide better networking experiences. So that was our first ever product, but we definitely did not stop there. We listened to our customers, and I think at the moment we have seven products, uh, Again, selling just to event planners, event marketers uh, to solve all of their problems. But it's crazy to think that all of that started at the beginning, at the very beginning, when we realized that there is a problem, you know, making networking better, making networking more efficient for people. But that's that's how that pivot happened. We literally had no clue that this is where this was it was gonna go, but we listened and we were open-minded and you know, failing and relaunching and failing again really gave us the understanding that it's okay to change your ideas. It's okay to pivot. And that became a very critical and core part of our values at, at Socio as, as we went through the different levels of our company throughout the years. Thank goodness you that. pivoted. <laughs> yes, I know, off, right? right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, one thing that I, I, I want to dive into a little bit more is is this aspect of like finding co-founders. Because um, I, I remember you you come up you came up with this maybe this networking idea, and then obviously there's you know thousands of students on Purdue's campus. I'm interested what, and this might just be hyping Joe and Alihan up a little bit, but what did you see in them uh, originally where it's like, you know, I want these people to not only be like my friends, but my partners in yeah. like something that could get big? Oh, great question. <laughs> I, think, I really think that's the million dollar question, Grayson. I unfortunately don't think there is a, you know, like a formula to finding the right co-founder, but here yeah. are a few things I can say. Uh, I consider myself one of the luckiest people ever because I found uh, what drives me and what gets me up and, you know, and going every morning at a very early age. I, I feel like, you know, a lot of people go through life not figuring that out. So I feel very lucky. That's one. And number two is I found the people that I love doing this with. And I think that that is very important. The more you operate and the more you run a company and the more you run teams and projects, the, the more you realize that it's all about people. And like you have heard me say this maybe a million times, Grayson, as you and I worked in the same company for a few years. I don't, I don't think there is any problem that is too big to solve for the right group of people. I don't think there is any opportunity that's too big or too complex to seize as long as you have the right people. So finding the right co-founders is, I mean, just a, you know, Perfect definition of make or break. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, I don't think there is a, you know, like a formula or I can't say go here and you'll find the right co-founders. Uh, one thing that I was very uh, careful with was I tried to find people who are not too similar to me, right? Like I am a massive optimist. Like at the very worst scenarios, I can find something, you know, some light to chase and you know see if we can make that the reality joe on the other hand happens to be you know a lot more 
uh, I see Grace in Critical. his lap. Yeah, a lot more cautious, a lot more pessimistic when it comes to some things. And you need both, right? I'm also like very, you know, I live my emotions, my highs and downs very uh, to extremes. Sometimes I'm like super excited about something. Sometimes I'm super down about something. Ali, on the other hand, for instance, is just. You know, he has this like neutral state that he keeps going at it and just getting getting shit done, right? So it's one thing to me that was very important was finding people who will balance me out. I think one of the mistakes a lot of early stage founders make is they try to find you know themselves themselves you know two two more graces you know one more crystal when in reality that's not what you need at all because a, a team isn't just three graces or three crystals or three arcans. You need need different people with different mindsets, different strengths, and weaknesses in some cases. I love it. I love it. Maybe, can you just give us one piece of tactical advice? You know, I have a great idea. I have no idea how to build it. How do I find my CTO? How do, how do I find my Ali? How did you find good, your Ali? Good, good luck. <laughs> good luck. Finding, yeah. finding Ali's is hard for sure. How did I find my Ali? I'll tell you guys that story. So you, you know truly how random. The world, the world could be sometimes. I was flying from Istanbul to O'Hare, Chicago O'Hare, and I had a stop at uh, London Heathrow, if I remember correctly. And it was winter, winter month, and I think school was on a break, winter break, so I went back home to see my family. Uh, on my return, Turkish Airlines had a delay, so I missed, uh, I missed my London Heathrow to Chicago flight because my Istanbul to London Heathrow flight was just super delayed. So they had my luggage, you know, it was, it was on the Chicago flight. I couldn't make it. I had to sleep on the ground in London Heathrow. It was just the most miserable day of my life. And landed in Chicago, hopped on a bus that went from O'Hare to Purdue's campus in, in Indiana. And... I walked into the bus. I already had my tickets purchased. I had a hotel booked for a night. So all of my plans went to zero. It was terrible. And then I hop on the bus. I sit down. And then this guy walks in and sits next to me. And I see that he's texting in Turkish. So I'm like, hey, are you Turkish too? And he's like, yes, I'm Turkish. And he goes on to tell me the story about how he had the best flight of his life. <laughs> how there was an you know, empty seats in the whatever economy plus or they how they upgraded them for free, how he doesn't even have a shuttle ticket for this shuttle and he just walked in and they let him in. Hey, like, whatever the worst experience I had, he had the best experience. So my, my first reaction to Ali was like, well, this guy uh, is an asshole. Uh, he, he was telling me his great, great story uh, of how his flight was amazing when my flight was terrible. That's how I met Ali. So we spent two, three hours uh, on the road talking about his love for entrepreneurship, how he tried a few startups with this guy named Joe Watkins and how I, how they didn't go well, you know, and I talked about how that's what I want to do. So yeah, that's, that's how I met Ali. It's hard. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You realize he's not such a bad guy after all. But that was my first impression as he talked about his amazing flight. Hilarious. Okay. So you have your co-founders. That's wonderful. And you start executing, right? So this is maybe a little bit creepy, but on Twitter, I saw a little bit of a progression, right? So first it was, 
you know, there were 80 people and 120 handshakes and 300 accounts. Okay. Then it was like five days later or something crazy. And you posted 150 people and 250 (laughs) handshakes. And okay. So it excelled, right? Then you were talking about how you went to three events in one day. So I saw this quick progression and the excitement. I, I read the excitement. So can you just tell us a little bit about the progression of, okay, we're here, we're executing, right? It's not just the idea you're executing to, yeah. okay, now we need funding, now we're raising funds, et cetera. Great question. We were definitely very excited. Uh, <laughs> yeah. every, every milestone we hit, we, we, we definitely celebrated. And there were, there were a lot of them. We were growing very, very fast. If you probably like scroll through my Twitter, you will kind of realize how fast we were growing as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Told you guys the story about how I met my co-founders, you know, how we went from a consumer application and realized there was a huge gap in the in the business of events and conferences and B2B. So we pivoted very quickly. We started uh, you know, writing code, designing products that were tailor-fit uh, to event organizers. And you know, I still draw for six hours a day, five hours a day, attending as many events as I possibly can, talking to as many event planners as we, we possibly, you know, we, poss- we possibly can talk to, uh, and you know, we, we kept building it. And at that point, we had maybe like one paying customer, and it became four paying customers, ten paying customers, and then we realized that there was something, there was a big opportunity here. I remember having that conversation with Joe and Ali and telling them, you know, hey, guys, I think there is a big opportunity here. If we don't do it, somebody else will. We can always go back to college, but this might be a once in a lifetime opportunity. And, you know, I, I remember telling them that we should do this full time. And um, I thought they would think that I am completely out of my mind and that will be the end of that discussion. But Oh, they were they were also crazy. So they <laughs> agreed, and we literally just stopped going to school and started working on this full time. Uh, you know, we at that point we had zero funding. Uh, I will uh, never forget this. I attended a, like a meetup at Purdue Foundry, and there I was telling Purdue Foundry is like a you know entrepreneurship hub of Purdue University. Uh, I remember explaining to someone, one of our mentors, uh, at, the, at the very early stage, how we were pivoting to B2B, how you know we wanted to build a single platform that you can run all of your events on. Uh, and there was this guy who was sitting there and kind of just listening to me, even though I wasn't talking to him. And he later uh, came up to me and he was like, so I, you know, I heard your vision, love it. How much money do you guys need? Uh, it was really the first time that somebody asked me that question. So I remember looking and thinking to myself, and I, I told them, we don't need any money. You know, we, we just need time. We have a plan. We just need to execute. And uh, there he explained to me that, you know, money can help you, you know, buy, buy time in some cases and move, move faster or, uh, you know, try harder with more, with more people, with more initiatives. And, I think a few days later, he wrote us a $24,000 check. Um, and that, that really became uh, the this, this, this starting point for us to hire a few people and really push extremely hard on our go-to-market as well as our product development. We, the moment we found that niche, the moment we found that you know, 
perfect spot to enter the market and some idea of how we will expand from that spot, we went into execution mode. And from that point on, for five years, six years, we just went on and just every single day executed nonstop. And we went from, you know, just a few people in a tiny office to, you know, 50 people in an office, 100 people, almost 200 people uh, before our acquisition. And from, you know, an event here, an event there to having, you know, tens of thousands of events globally uh, every year, every month is super exciting. So just to clarify the timeline a bit, you guys all dropped out before that $24,000 check or after? No, we dropped out after that. <laughs> okay. So as soon as you got it, you're like, okay, we're, we're out. Can I just um, ask, what does your parents say? Yeah. You know, $24,000 is a lot of money when you're a college student. You know, yeah. looking back at it, would you, would should three people drop out knowing that they have twenty four thousand dollars in the bank? Probably not. You should not do that unless you have a good plan. But you know, to us, it was just a very large amount of money and a great safety net that made us feel a bit more comfortable, I guess, to drop out and go for it. What did my parents say? Wow, great question. So um, I, I'm the only child, so they have sacrificed basically everything they have and uh, to, to, to send me here and to really uh, allow me to chase cliche, but the American dream, right? Uh, that's, 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 what, that's why they did this for me. Uh, so, you know, the, the single child, you know, in America, clearly their biggest dream was for me to graduate, get a job, you know, the, the, the standard process that you, you would think through. So I called them one day. I remember telling my mom, I'm like, hey, is, is dad with you? And she was like, yes, he's here. He can hear you. I'm like, and are you guys sitting down? And I remember her saying, uh, we are not. Why? And I was like, Sit down. <laughs> Get ready for these news. Uh, yeah, and then I, I explained it to them. Uh, clearly, they they initially weren't very happy, but you know, as always, I'm I'm very blessed. They trusted me, and they they even though they didn't fully understand, I think what I was talking about. I'm still not sure if they fully understand <laughs> what I say. But yeah, they trusted that I will do what was right and uh, su- supported me at the end of the day. But. Yeah, de- definitely not a very, very happy day in the family history. I, would say. <laughs> I love it. No pressure for me, though, Yark, and I'm an only child, too. So uh, I got to get hey. up on my entrepreneurship game, I think. <laughs> Look, Crystal, a lot of people ask me, they're like, should I drop out? You know, hey, I'm a college student. I have this brilliant idea. And, you know, looking back at it, it's a very cool story to tell. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I do question what the heck were we thinking? Like we, you know, we definitely didn't have enough funding, enough traction. <laughs> you know, we just had good ideas and some early traction that we thought we could turn into a you know, massive traction turned out quite well, but definitely uh, do not recommend it to anyone unless they have a, you know, a, a good plan in mind. I, I do also have to say, I think this is something that media tends to, you know, glorify sometimes. It's like, hey, you know, look at this guy and this gal who dropped out of, you know, Harvard or MIT and, you know, went on to become, you know, this, this built this billion dollar company, built this company helping millions of people. For sure that happens, but I do want you to think through 
for every person who makes it there with this great story, you know, how many people are there who tried this and didn't turn out uh, the same way for them? So definitely be smart and make your own decisions. Don't just read the news and think that this is the only way to do it. Yarkin doesn't want to start a new movement of yeah, tens right. of thousands, thousands dropping of out of here. College students <laughs> drop out after Yarkin podcast Yarkin goes so. live. <laughs> I uh, so I'm interested, Yarkin, hearing a little bit more about like the early traction that you were getting with the B2B product. So so talk about that. Talk about you know your first couple of like maybe free beta customers, your first yeah. like paid customers where they're saying, I will give you money for your technology. Uh, tell us about that. How did that uh, come about? Great question. And like I said, distribution in some cases even is more important than uh, the product. Definitely need an A-class product, but without an a-class distribution and go-to-market strategy, it means nothing. So from the very, very early days, we were very obsessed with how we are going to go to market and how we are going to scale that. Um, but of course, at the very early days, you don't think about scale, right? You do things that actually don't scale. And that's exactly what we did as well. As we were based out of Purdue, to get as many trial events as possible, we went to everyone within Purdue who hosts events, right? And we tried to get them to use it and adopt it. And we were able to get, you know, multiple successful events done, even though they didn't you know, necessarily pay anything or anything, anything, you know, material or meaningful at the time. Uh, after doing those, you know, trials and, you know, free trials and seeing the success and getting the feedback and, you know, iterating the product to be a better fit, we immediately started going going to market uh, with with an actually priced, you know, properly priced product. Uh, initially, and this this just sounds crazy looking back at it now. I just started doing cold calls, and I will book meetings. I will only call it the state of Indiana initially, and when I call, if they agree to meet with me, I would actually drive there and have an in person meeting with them, and I. I we did this for months and months, and it, it worked perfectly. I, I would assume maybe we closed our first 20, maybe 30 customers like this by cold calling them and driving to their office and actually doing a live demo, which, you know, it's, it's, it's unique for software, but for most sales, that's, that's actually how you do it. Later on, I learned about this thing called cold emailing. You know, it's similar to cold calling, but you can do it, you know, at, at a bit more of a scale. So we started adding cold emailing in addition, in addition to cold calling, which was which was a game changer for us. At that time, Andrew Price, uh, our uh, employee number one and co-founder, he joined the team and he took over this cold emailing and cold calling. Um, and then we started actually reaching out to the entire Midwest area. Because at the time, we also realized that we don't have to drive everywhere. We can actually use <laughs> you know, uh, you know, something like WebEx, or Zoom, or Google Meet uh, to meet with them as well. And that was also a you know, life-changing moment for us. But that's how it started, basically cold calling and then cold emailing. And then we started doing SEO. We started doing uh, you know, PPC, paid ads. Uh, we started doing events, sponsorships. Of course, now we have a very uh, robust go-to-market strategy, but at the early days, it was just me calling hundreds of people a day and driving for hours. At one point, I was driving and then cold calling simultaneously. Uh, 
We wouldn't advise that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm not advise doing that. Uh, but yes, definitely. Does that uh, help conversion rates? Do we do we know? Is there data out there? I don't know. I think I got so good at Grayson. You know, at, at some point I would drive four hours a day, do my cold calls on the way. When I are, uh, you know, when when and then I'll come back to the office and start doing my actual day job, which is to be the CEO of the company. And I think that that leads in perfectly to our, our, you know, the next thing that we wanted to talk about. What is being CEO of like uh, five, six early stage startup look like? Um, besides, obviously, helping out with sales, marketing, all this stuff. Uh, what were you focused on back then? How did that kind of develop as the company grew and scale into, you know, where it's at today? Great question. I think one thing we do quite well especially compared to most most early stage startups is we sat down at the very early days Grayson and thought through what you know socio two years from now five years from now would look like and that's very difficult to do but at least at a high level you know what would be the functions what would be the departments and I remember uh, walking into our first like office in Lafayette and we had this uh, big like whiteboards on the wall. And I remember writing there the five departments that we are going to have. The sales department, sorry, the marketing department, the sales department, the customer department, the product department, and at the end of the day, the, the, the business department. Uh, I remember writing these five and explaining to uh, to the team, well, team, meaning we were just four people. <laughs> uh, you know, it's how these were going to be our five departments. And I remember one of them, you know, one of my co-founders actually asked me, Yarkin, we, we are four people. How the heck do we have five departments? And I'm like, well, you know, start thinking like this and one day we will get there. Um, and one thing, like I said, I think we did quite well is we had one person from the team on each one of those departments. The unfortunate news is I had to own two because we only had four people. Uh, But uh, we gave ownership at the very beginning and each one of us, even though we weren't experts at one of those areas, throughout these five years, six years, almost eight, nine years now, we all became subject matter experts or or exceptionally well at at that area that we divided back in the day. And what I did was I owned the business department and I would help with basically everything else that, that you know, Andrew Price owned the sales department, Ali owned uh, the product, Joe Watkins owned the customer department and marketing was kind of a shared thing initially for all of us. Uh, but I feel like I always, you know, uh, made sure that those four, those five teams worked quite well together. Initially, I would literally fill the gaps on all of those departments uh, as we moved on and became a bigger company. And one thing you will realize if you're running a high, high growth uh, organization like Socio, Socio is and Socio was, is every six to 12 months, you realize that you're running an entirely new, like you're dealing with an entirely new beast. There's new people, new processes, new challenges. And every six months, you got to you know, unlearn and learn again what the next stage requires. Uh, So, uh, you know, it went from filling all the gaps at the very beginning towards the ends. And even today, my job is to hire the right people, retain the right people, uh, set the right goals, remove the roadblocks 
and keep the magic going. Those are the five things I do now. And something that's also just super interesting to me is the fact that, uh, and then this for a lot of young young founders, but um, you know, there's natural intuition, but there's obviously something something more that, that's helping out there. Talk a little bit about how do you actually go from you're a college student, you've you maybe your classes aren't exactly relevant to what you're doing on the side. You start running a business. Now you're saying every six months you're having to essentially become a new version of a CEO, the one that's run and experienced. Was it books? Was it relying on mentors? Like tell us about that. Like how do you actually learn when you're you're not taking classes? How do you learn those lessons and stuff that you then go on to apply at Socio as you guys scale? Yeah, good question. And I don't think there is one more time a like, right answer for everybody. For me, it was, a, let's call it a healthy mix of trying, messing it up, and then retrying again, you know, iterating and trying to find the right way. That definitely was a big part of how we learned. We just messed up, learned, tried it again, and kept doing it until, until uh, we saw success. Uh, but outside of that, I found mentors extremely helpful. Uh, it's also important to find the right type of mentor at the right stage. You know, like that Yarkin six years ago, uh, you know, if I had, I don't know, founder of a Fortune 500 company uh, giving me, you know, giving me advice, I don't think that would be very useful, right? Even though they themselves, you know, she has been there maybe 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. I think the right mentor needs to be one or two stages ahead of you. And and that's very important. And there is a, a, a reality called outgrowing your mentors. You know, sometimes you are at stage zero and... Who you need is somebody who is at stage one or stage two. Stage five is too far away. And even though they were at stage zero at some point, the world is changing very quickly. And your advice mm. from 10 years ago might not be, you know, <laughs> might not always be the right advice. So I always focused on finding the right mentors within two stages, one or two stages, uh, as I am just ahead of me. So they were able to give me advice on what they dealt with a year ago, you know two years ago, and I did outgrow a few of these mentors. You know, at that point, my company became bigger than their company. So I had to, one more time, unlearn, relearn new skills and become a new operator, the new CEO. And at that point, I would need a new new mentor as well. So trying and failing a lot, learning number one, two mentors, and three, of course, again, books, podcasts, I don't see that too different than the mentor. You know, a mentor Mm. is someone who, you know, has a bigger sample size than you do, who has experienced similar things to you. And then they simply tell you the stories. To me, a book is literally the same thing. They just happen to write it instead of tell you on a 101. So reading a lot, not only books, but, you know, uh, podcasts, blogs. Like I was a huge fan of Saster. Saster.com, I, I read all of their blogs, all of their white papers. Anytime they had an ebook, I would download it, read it. Their annual conferences I would attend. So yeah, find yourself a mentor, a community like Saster, 
for me, that was the right fit for my business. There's communities, there's events for, for everyone. But then at the end of the day, don't forget that nobody has the answer for you. You got to figure out the answer yourself. And to me, the best way to do that sometimes was to just sprint towards a brick wall, hit your head, get up, do it again, get up, do it again until you tweaked it to the right point, right? Yarkin, you mentioned failure two or three times in the last 45 seconds, okay? Uh, in SaaS, especially we say, you know, fail fast, pivot, let's go, try again. You mentioned run to the wall, get up, do it again, right? What do you do now tactically when you or someone on your team experiences a failure? How do you, I don't know, either celebrate or deal with that failure to actually turn it into something that can actually fuel growth? Yeah, great question. Well, if you're in this line of business, failure is a part of your job. If you're not failing, that means you're not trying hard enough or you're not trying enough different things because you know what you want to do is you want to just fail forward right and that's what we always do i think in this line of business if this is not a part of your culture your chances of making it will will reduce very drastically here's what i mean by that imagine an early stage company where failure is the worst thing you can do mm. and then clone that exact same company and have the culture tweaked in a way that failure is encouraged. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, nobody wants to, hey, let's go fail, you know, said, said nobody. But failure isn't the end of the world. You, you need to fail so you learn and you try again. And that's what, that's, that's what I'm saying. Get up, run towards the brick wall. Get up again, run towards the brick wall. Now, now of course, try, try different things. So I think it's very, very important that this becomes a part of your culture. And it certainly is a part of our culture at Socio and now at WebEx events. Something that I, I'm super curious on hearing uh, like an update on. So in, in uh, one of our very first conversations, maybe you're onboarding me to, you know, the socio team, something I, I think word for word events can, should, and will be measurable, optimizable, and repeatable as the rest of the marketing stack. And so I, I know this is a core part of like the socio pitch to founders, everything. How close do you think we are to this being a reality and what's still missing from, from your perspective? Yeah, yeah. Great question. I think we are getting closer to it every single day, not only as just a company in this industry, in this market, but as the entire industry, we are transforming for that to become a reality. Let's first double click into what I mean by that, right? When you talk marketing, right, the word ROI, the return on investment is a very important one. And every effort you have, every single you know dollar of budget you spend or energy that you spend should actually have an ROI and return on investment you know as a as a as a return from that energy or that dollar or that budget that you spend. For instance, Grayson, let's say you're running your current company, right? And you want to create some demand and go to market and you're going to use, let's say, pay pay-per-click, right? PPC advertising for that. If you go, Grayson, and gave a $1,000 budget to Google, right, very clearly within a day or a few days or a few weeks, it will give you a report that says something. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. But Grayson, you gave us a $1,000 budget. With this budget, we went ahead and showed your company and your ad 
to 25 people who search for HubSpot agencies. Out of those 25, making things up, seven of them ended up clicking on your ad, four of them ended up spending time on the page, two of them scheduled a demo, and one of them is now a customer who's paying you, I don't know, $10,000 a year. You see, the ROI on that $1,000 is very clear. I spent $1,000, 25 people saw my ad, two of them ended up booking a demo, one of them became a customer, and now they're a lifetime customer. To me, that's repeatability, measurability, right? That's how marketing should be done. Now, let's take a look at events. It's, it's one of the largest portion of the marketing budget goes to events, right? Companies spend more on events than they do in you know, a lot of their demand generation or mar- marketing activities. It's also, an, it's also a high ticket item. It's expensive to do an events program. It's expensive to run your own event, to sponsor other events. So let's run through that same scenario that I just ran you through, Grayson, for events, right? You are running a company and instead of pay-per-click or instead of inbound marketing or outbound marketing, you want to do an events program. And let's just keep things simple. One more time, you have $1,000. You now go to a conference and sponsor a booth and you know maybe they print your logo uh, on the backdrop and you know, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe you have a you know you have some swag and people walk by your booth. Some of them stop by your booth. Explain to me the same pipeline, the same measurability. How would that work? And compare it to how pay per click would have worked, right? Usually, you, you simply don't have enough data. Yes, we sent people to that event. Yes, we spent this much money and we had this cool booth and gave up this cool swag. But it's, it's, it's nowhere as you know, measurable and repeatable as the rest of the marketing stack, right? I want to change that. I, I think it's ridiculous. Why not? You know? So that's why I said events should be as repeatable, as measurable, and as scalable as the rest of the marketing stack and the marketing technology. So yes, very early on, that was our dream. And every day we work towards that dream. How close are we? I think there's three you know, parts to making this a reality. Number one, identifying and collecting the right data, right? Number two, analyzing that data and getting meaningful actions or you know, patterns out of it. And number three is to visualize that in a way that makes it easy to consume and make decisions out of. And an important part of that is to have that data integrate with the rest of the business, right? The, the CRM, the marketing automation. So, so just like everything else, it's, it's in symphony, right? Does that make sense? Um, and I think we have a great check mark on the first two uh, of those, collecting, identifying, and collecting the right, right data. That was one of our core initiatives at WebEx Events two years ago. And we spent an entire year making that happen this, this last year, we spent a lot of energy in analyzing data, that data and making it actionable. Now, our biggest prior, priority, and I think a thing we are that's making us a bit far away still from that goal, is to take that data and take those actions and integrate it to the rest of the ecosystem, right? What happens in your events 
your HubSpot should be aware of, your Salesforce instance should be aware of, your marketing technology should be aware of. So that's the gap now we are working on closing. But I feel like not only us, but the entire industry is getting closer and closer to that vision every day. Well, yeah, my, I think my my clients are definitely excited for that. We do a, a lot of events ourselves, so I know, right? Can't wait to to see that in HubSpot. Uh, so, wanted to fast forward a little bit. You've talked a little bit about you know building the business, uh, and you mentioned that you were acquired, which was a big deal. Talk about that acquisition process. I believe you even went as far as getting an Airbnb in the middle of the woods. Am I? Am I remembering incorrectly? Just talk through that whole timeline of events for the people. Yeah, yeah. I'll share what, what I'm allowed to share. Yes. So two years ago now, we joined forces with Cisco, uh, Cisco Systems and the WebEx family to realize our shared vision of you know transforming the business of events uh, globally. And the acquisition process was definitely a new one for me. So first time going through it. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, to go through this with Cisco was extremely impressive, I got to say. Uh, for those of you who know Cisco, you will know that you know acquiring companies and adding them to their amazing suite of solutions and, and products is not something new for Cisco at all. It's something they have been doing for a very long time. So they were definitely very robust uh, with the entire acquisition process. And I have learned a lot through that <laughs> process. And yes, you're right, Grayson. I did spend a few months as it took you know, uh, a long time to go through this process. I did spend a few months in a cabin uh, working, <laughs> I think, like 14, 15 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, uh, trying to get, get that acquisition process through. And uh, yeah, it was uh, definitely high stress, but worth it at the end of the day. And another kind of interesting acquisition question, and this is, uh, it's happened since I've talked to you last, so I figured I'd throw it in here. What did you think about the the BlackRock acquisition uh, of Cvent? So Cvent is a, a, a huge competitor, kind of like the, uh, the market leader um, in the event technology space, at least from a market cap size and, and a revenue size. What did you think about them going uh, private once more uh, through BlackRock? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I respect uh, Cvent and the Cvent team a lot. Like you, like you alluded to, going private one more time, they definitely have that survival instinct, right? We, a lot of us, went through a crazy pivot uh, in the industry, trying to survive the COVID wave. Going into it, it was one shock. Coming out of it is another shock. And Cvent, if you take a look at their history. They have seen it all, all types of crisis in the industry, just macro, you know, the macro crisis. And they always find a way, found a way to thrive. And that I respect a lot. From BlackRock's perspective, I think it makes sense. Uh, this is a, this, the events business is a big one. It's going through a lot of transformation. And, you know, going into COVID, that shock led to a lot of the companies in the industry basically dying and shutting down operations, new ones being born. And now I think a similar consolidation and a shakeup, I guess, is happening now coming out of the pandemic and now going back to in-person events. Uh, so I think uh, BlackRock is you know, doing the right thing. I see a lot of, uh, yeah, I see a lot of opportunity in this market and uh, wish, wish them the best of luck, of course. I love it. I want to go a little more fast forward. So acquired, great. Honestly, congratulations. Super exciting. Really happy Thank for you. you. 
and now you are obviously working for WebEx, but let's just put that aside. You're young, you obviously were grinding, you did the socio thing. What sorts of opportunities interest you now? Maybe, you know, when you said, uh, when you first started socio, you told your, your team of four, <laughs> you told your department heads, uh, you know, what, what are we gonna look like in two years? What about five years? So now if you were to ask yourself those questions, Maybe we do five and 10, just way down the road. What interests you? What do you see? I consider myself a very, very lucky person because I found what I love doing, you know, what gets me up and going every single morning, no matter how hard it can get sometimes at a very young age. And uh, I'm not going to let that go to waste, right? Uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing this, keep doing what I love. And that's to solve very big problems, right? With with great people that I love solving problems with, uh, and I, yeah, I can't I can't wait to keep doing that. Whether it's in a in an operator seat again, you know, founding another company and building it, uh, or in a seat of an investor or an advisor, I just want to be close to the action. I just want to uh, you know work with incredible people and build build something incredible. That's 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 what drives me. It's all about the I people. I, I want to end us on a question that we ask uh, in different variations, you know, depending on on the person we're talking to. Um, and it's about that development. So from individual contributor to sales manager to CRO, uh, your story is a little different. You kind of skipped a couple of those <laughs> traditional steps. Um, but just because like the CEO you are now is very different from the CEO you were at, at 19 uh, at Purdue. Um, what would be some recommendations to other young CEOs who, who's maybe skipped some of those lessons that people tend to learn early on in their career? Like what were some of the things that you had to work on as a young CEO and how did you go about improving and working on those things? Well, first things first, be honest with yourself, right? Is this the path you want to choose? Because it is going to be a long journey, right? It, it usually takes five to 10 years to make this happen. So are you in it for the long run is the first question. I, I advise uh, entrepreneurs and operators to ask themselves. And there is nothing wrong with the answer being, no, I'm not. Or, no, not yet, right? Let's first be very honest with ourselves. I, I, think, I think that's very important. The second thing is be very open-minded. You are going to be wrong. And I'm sorry, you might think that you have this brilliant idea that you don't even want to share with anybody because it's just this amazing idea and it's, uh, it's, it's going to change the world. I'm sorry, but more than likely, you're wrong. And you're going to be wrong millions of times in this, you know, usually what it takes five to 10 years. So be ready to be wrong. I think is, an, is another thing that's very widely applicable and uh, for somebody who wants to do uh, you know, to, to do what I have done, what you guys are doing. The third thing is find the right people. Said it already, right people change everything. And I am 120% sure that we couldn't have done what we have done if Joe Watkins wasn't there, if, you know, if Andrew Price wasn't there, if Ali wasn't there, if our teams weren't there, if you weren't there, Grayson, right? Uh, it, that's... That is extremely important. And you might think it's the idea that matters. You might think it's the process that matters. At the end of the day, you're going to realize it's all about people, period. So make sure that you hire the right people, retain the right people, set the right goals, 
remove the roadblockers and keep the magic going. Uh, those those would be the five things I would focus on if, if I were a young father again today. I love it. Well, I want to end on where should people find you? You got some LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, where should people get in touch with you, essentially, or yeah. follow your story? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter, on my LinkedIn Type in my first and last name and, and you should be able to find me. I, I do hope to be more active uh, on, on the networks and share more. Uh, I'm hoping to make that happen in the next few years. Love it. Well, thanks, Yarkin. Awesome. It was great having you on. Thank you, Crystal, Grayson. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Yarkin.